is Bonehead Weekly. Welcome. Last yes. week, we Last had week. part one of our interview with Steve Mitchell. There you go. I was going to say Mr. Mitchell, but I was trying to let you all be involved. Mr. Steve Mitchell. We talked to him about his work in comic books, how he went over to animation, and this week we'll be finishing the interview with him talking about his work with King Cohen, and uh, which is a documentary he made about Larry Cohen, and some other fascinating things, as well as ending on what he is going to be working on next, which actually will be leading into another documentary as well that you'll want to check out. So, Which will actually be hopefully leading into part three of our Steve Mitchell. I mean, he's a, he's a fascinating guy because I just, I've never met, we've never interviewed someone before who was successful at something else. It's like, ah, I'm going to go out to Hollywood while I'm doing this successful thing and still made a living to be become successful in something, a totally different industry. And as you heard last week, he's our first guest that ever had his own trading card. Yeah, we I mean, never had a trading card. We don't even have one of those Funko Pops or anything. No, no. I mean, if you would like to make a customized Funko Pop. Well, Joe, I'm sure there's a Pavarotti any, Funko head that you could say is me, is you. No, no, I was <laughs> going to say, no, no. Easy joke to go here, but I'm here, just let it go. Keep going. Here, okay. here, here, here. Look, we, as we no, get fair, ready somebody could have, Somebody could have a Professor Xavier and go, oh, there's Chad. Every, I'm not uh, going to go with Professor X. Keep going, James. Every uh, as we head into this episode, which you should check out, we'll also make this offer. If you happen to be into custom modeling and you model uh, or you alter three Funko Pops into the Boneheads, I'll make this deal right now. The first person that does it, we'll actually buy a copy of King Cohen and and give it to you. Yeah, we'll give you a copy of that. And you have to send us a photo. We'll post it on Twitter. And the one of us will person... also have sex with you, but you don't get to choose which one. It'll be Joe. It is not going to be Joe. Well, it might be. I don't be know. Me. It depends on who does it. It's not going to be me. It could be. One no, of us has to not. do it. I don't, I don't, I didn't make that part of the deal. Well, you just heard it come out of my mouth, son. You're already signed up. <laughs> no, that's not oh, how that works. That's we are a liability corporation. This is now, not taking we, that are, we are LL something, and you're going to LLA somebody. I'm more going to be like LL being gone. And on that note, enjoy part two Here of Steve, Steve Mitchell. Mitchell. Yeah. So you get this. And then you start writing. Where does the producing and the behind the scenes? And I'm assuming you're a big Bond fan too. Oh yeah, no, I'm an enor- I'm an enormous Bond fan. In fact, I saw From Russia with Love with my dad when it was originally released. Uh, I'll never forget. It was a Sunday afternoon. My dad said, "Come on, we're going to the movies." Well, I don't know. I think it was maybe nine, maybe ten. I don't know. And but if my dad said we're going to the movies, I went. It wasn't like, what are we going to go see? Yeah. There's none of that. And then he took me to see From Rush With Love, which I went out of my mind for. Um, I think that was the movie that told me that I was straight because when I saw Daniela Bianchi, (laughs) there was no doubt. Your nightgown type of thing. I'm, you know, I'm feeling stuff that I didn't know I was supposed to be able to feel. I was kind of going, oh, yeah, okay, you know. and so, yeah, and, and again, people don't know this or people who are y- younger than I am forget that if you wanted to see a movie again, there's no going to the shelf. You had to nope. go to the theater. And then because the Bond movies were so popular, they were often reissued as double features between the new ones. 
Mm-hmm. And every when I was still living, when I was living at home, every single time a Bond movie came out, my dad would just say, "Come on, we're going to the Bond movie." And uh, my brother was too young to go with us, and my mother didn't care. But we went, and it was this father and son bonding, uh, you know, in, pun intended. That's fantastic. Experience. And so, yeah, I, I still love those pictures today. Well, I know you, you know, you worked on some of the special features and I was wondering if, if that's how the work came about, if it was just accidental or if you were just going after, you just, you understand my, my question. Career is, is, is semi-accidental. No, right. um, well, kind of, I, I would think that you're getting sort of a picture of that or yeah. I knew. Uh, my buddy, Steve Rubin, uh, called me up one day and said, I hear that they're putting combat out on DVD. Now, Steve was a really good uh, film journalist. I had done some film journalism in New York as well. Another mm-hmm. one of my wrinkles, uh, partly because I realized if I did some of that, one, I could make extra money and B, it got me on the screening lists of all the studios. So I That's saw, our dream. It was great. <laughs> That is our dream. We don't want ever want to make a, we know we're never going to make a dime. We would just be fine on, on the screener list and some just of, Oh, look, exit this. So we could just show it. (laughs) Yeah. And well, I actually was writing for a couple of film magazines Uh, again, not with any sort of real zeal, but it was kind of a secondary thing I could do while I was doing comics, but I got to see everything, you know, more or less for free. And um, it was, uh, you know, saved me a lot of money, I'll tell you that. And um, so, where was I going with this? Um, oh, Steve Rubin, yes. Yeah. So this guy who had written for Cine Fantastique, and I met at a convention. He was also a PR guy, and he was promoting the uh, Donald Sutherland uh, invasion of the body snatchers picture. He was going around Kaufman the one, yeah. And we got to know each other. And again, it's a whole kindred spirits thing where you start talking. Yeah, I love that. And I love this. And I love that. And we had, again, a lot of, a lot of stuff in common. One of which was the combat TV series, which again, mm-hmm. I watched with my dad as a kid um, because they were running around shooting guns every week, you know? And so when you're young, you know, you got to love that. And, um, and he said that image is doing these we should call them up and try and do extras. Now, I hadn't had any thought about doing that kind of work, but because it was combat, I said, yeah. And I had, you know, I had done a lot of magazine interviews and stuff like that. So I, I felt I was capable of doing it. And we called them up and they said, sure, it'd be great. We're not going to pay you. We'll give you a little swag and, and that'll be it. And so what I did was a bunch of interviews with people and we did sort of a 20 minute doc which i cut at image with one of their in-house guys and then we got a bunch of people to come in and do um commentary tracks mm-hmm. um and i was very pr- proud of what we were able to do because we got a bunch of people who've never done anything like sutton roley who i don't know if you know his work as a tv director no i'm not familiar with him please really talented look up his imdb page and you know he worked on everything yeah but his combat work was especially good he was great with lenses his his camera was very interesting 
And um, so we got Sutton, Richard Donner had done one episode of the show. We got him, guys like Ted Post, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then the coup was I got Robert Altman to talk to me um, about two shows. Altman was one of the original loop, directing loop on that show. I didn't know that. Combat was originally produced like a movie mm-hmm. where the director oftentimes was the producer. And Burt Kennedy, who wrote and directed, you know, he was almost sometimes a trifecta. And I said to them, I said, I think I can get Robert Altman to talk. I'd have to fly back to New York. And they said, go, go get him. And I got to, you know, I get, I got Altman to uh, uh, sit down and watch two of his shows. Now, what was interesting, what was interesting to me was I had no bona fides as an expert on the show, except I knew a lot about the show. Right just a fan yeah and but i didn't know how to sell myself so i was essentially the invisible interviewer and it seemed like the people that i was interviewing on the tracks were doing a monologue and they were very happy at image and uh but they still weren't going to pay anything so i said all right i'll produce some commentaries but i'm not going to do filmmaking for free yep so in season two and three, I, I produced the commentary tracks as well. Ruben kind of went away, um, not for any malice or anything like that, but there was no, nothing really in it for him. Yeah. And, but I said, well, if I don't do it, someone else is going to do it. And I'm going to be pissed. Yeah. I wanted to hear the anecdotes first. <laughs> because you're I, a fan. Back to what we were talking yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you guys know exactly what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. So anyway, I was talking to um, one of the few female writers on the show, a woman named Esther Mitchell, no relation, although her husband, Bob, that was my dad's first name. So every week I'd be watching the show and every once in a while they'd write a script and his name would be on the screen. I'd say, so how's the script this week, dad? You know, <laughs> what do I know? I was an idiot kid. But one of the editors up there was listening to me chat them up and said, you know, you've got a halfway decent voice. And they seem very relaxed if you take the for, you know, the formalness out of it. Mm-hmm. Said, Would you mind being on the track? And I said, no, I don't mind at all. If it's going to make it easier for you guys, I just have to justify myself. And then I, am, I just sort of thought of this intro where I would say, hi, everybody. I'm Steve Mitchell, DVD special feature producer for Combat Season 3, 2, and... I would just introduce myself as having that job. And that, in my mind, validated me. And I think I was able to hold my own. And, and so the commentaries became very chatty. They weren't, they, they, I tried to, I, I learned a very interesting trick is you have to take something that's formal-ish and turn it into a chat or a conversation. You know, like if you guys were doing a commentary track, yeah. like what we're doing now. Mm-hmm. having a conversation. And so I got on the microphone, I think it might've been in season three. And then I did, I did the seasons four and five. And then because they were successful, they were also paying me a bit to produce film and docu stuff. And because of combat, I got my feet wet as a commentator or commentarian, if that's even a word. And then also- for me. It also basically it, it gave me a chance to do filmmaking yeah and so that was that was very important to me 
And I'm sorry, I just got distracted by the clock here. So let me let me let me uh, just move a little faster. That's okay. Um, and when I was working for Image, they were very happy with what I was doing. And that's where I first got my idea for King Cohen. It wasn't called King Cohen. It was it was a Larry Cohen documentary because I realized I said, you know, I, I need to sort of maybe do my own stuff. And but in the meantime, and they said, gee, sounds great. You know, maybe we'll acquire it once you make it. I was looking for them to finance it. <laughs> and I'm sure you've talked to a lot of guests where they say um, getting money is the absolute toughest part of the business. Oh, brother. Well, yeah. and this is something we talk about with a lot of filmmakers now. It's never been easier to make a movie. It's never been harder to make a buck at it. And to get bucks to make it in the first place. Yeah, it's never been harder. And so the, the Larry Cohen thing got backburnered for me, but I continued to do extras and I did things like Never Say Never Again, Casino Royale. Um, I did a few other things, which I can't remember right now. Oh, I work on Sleeper Cell. Um, I, I did a few other things, but it was, it, was, it was tough to do that kind of work because the money wasn't really there. The budgets weren't there. Yeah. And well, go ahead. Well, no, I was going to say bef before we start on King Cohen, I've got a really different question because i want i kind of want to end with because we love the documentary oh, thank and, you and what i want to ask is i feel like you're one of those guys i'm sitting there looking at your imdb was researching stuff james researching stuff james uh, chad did too and i'm sitting there going i just don't think this represents your body of work and i'm curious how much have you ghost written on how much have you done that's nowhere even near being listed What's interesting is I did ghostwrite uh, a movie or two for Jim, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I wrote a lot of, I wrote a number of scripts that weren't produced. Yeah. And I, you know, things I wrote on spec for myself and things I wrote on spec for money. Yeah. Um, you know, being a freelancer, sometimes you have highs and lows, you have busy periods, you have uh, not busy periods. My comics career ended in the beginning of the twos. Because mm -hmm. I think I was fired because of ageism. You know, one day I was in the business and then I wasn't. And, and that, I have to say, that was a low point for me because I'm going, well, wait a second. Um, oh, I also worked on the uh, Spawn animated series as a yeah. storyboard guy. And my interest in inking comics was on, on the decline. Um, if I was with the right penciler, I would have fun. If I was with the wrong penciler, it was work. Mm -hmm. comics was never work for me when I was enjoying it. And, but I, you know, in the, 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 in the beginning of the 21st century, I was trying to transition out of co comics and into other things. And um, it's tough. The, the, I, I got a crash course in finding out how hard it is to uh, get money for a project. Yeah. And so, I had, I had a number of scripts that I, that I got paid for that didn't get produced. I had um, ideas for things that I couldn't get off the ground. Um, and it was hard then, and it's much harder now. You know, God, I miss the 80s. We had a mm -hmm. show picture in a week. <sighs> that doesn't happen anymore. <clears throat> I mean, if you're a name, maybe. Mm-hmm not for you know working class schmucks like myself i think it's only three or four people in the whole business less than a half a dozen that that happens that with that name of that you're just able to 
and then it's a go thing in a week you know it's, yeah it's, and 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 one of the things that i learned was this very interesting <laughs> turn of phrase was we said well i mean at one point i had written uh a feature length uh version of combat as a mm -hmm. you know and john Dahl, who is an excellent director Yes, Red Rock West. He primarily was making a living as um, a high-end cable episodic guy. Yeah. Primarily because I think he wanted to stay in Los Angeles. But he was getting the cream of the shows that were being being done then. And I'm I'm sure he still does. He's a wonderful director. Mm -hmm. He did a lot of the great one of the better one of some of the best Dexter episodes. That's what oh, I was thinking, Dexter's Chad. Thank you for bringing that up. Any, 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 if you look at his IMDb, you just look at his credits and he, and it's just all yeah. great shows. Mm -hmm. And we had a meeting with him. We approached him and he really was interested. And I said, well, John Dahl kind of matters. And then we tried to present that to feature people who I think actually knew his features and they knew he was a good feature director too. And they say, well, he doesn't mean anything. Well, one of the things that you may have may not have heard is that, you know, People say in April of, let's say, 2020, so-and-so doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. And then by March of 2021, that person is the hottest director on the planet. Yeah. And, and vice versa. So I always thought it was a load of shit. It is a load of I shit. That, you know, because the thing is, talent is talent, except in Hollywood. And, you know it's one of those weird things where Hollywood used to be a meritocracy, except when you're trying to make a deal. Yeah. You know, um, when I grew up as a fan, I would always go and see work by people, see films by people whose work I admired. And that was DPs, composers, actors, directors. It was, it, it didn't matter if good people were involved in a project, I would want to see it. Yep. And that's changed. Yeah. Well, we're in the interest of time. Let's start talking about King Cohen. How yeah, I, mean, just, I'm, I got a little more time than I said, but I just need to, you know, uh, so let's, let's do it. Yeah. Well, and because I want to talk about, you've got the Blu-ray out, right? Yeah. Uh, my partners, my partners and I, uh, my, one of my partners is a guy named Matt Verboys and he's the co-owner of La La Land Records, which is this great collector soundtrack label. And mm -hmm. Um, you can get you can get King Cohen on Blu-ray through La La Land or I think on Amazon. And the re and if you like King Cohen, the reason to have the Blu-ray is this: when I was when I was interviewing Larry, Larry alone, I think I got 16, 17 hours. Of and we're time. going to get to that in a second. I, I <laughs> go so ahead. We've got about I think forty-five or fifty minutes of Larry stories that were too involved to put in the in the feature because when you're cutting a feature you're cutting it as an entity you're not cutting it as a, a special features kind of thing where you're just trying to have interesting stuff mm -hmm. uh it's a different approach to editing altogether but these were good stories and then there's other stories from other people that we talked to so there's about an hour and 15 an hour and 20 minutes worth of, of extra material and then there's also the score as a separate cd by by joe kramer yeah so if you like the movie, it's worth getting or, or at the very least borrowing. We love the movie, but I, and I've got to get the Blu-ray. I'm going to get the Blu-ray. I, I just, 
why Larry? I know why I would have done it, but why did you do it? And I know it's a very simplistic question. My, my, my very initial impulse was I was a fan of his. Yeah. And I occasionally was hearing commentaries from him, I think in the laser and early DVD days. And I, I knew his story. And it's interesting how his story is a little parallel to mine because he grew up in New York City, loved mm -hmm. New York City, and then moved to Los Angeles and fell in love with Los Angeles. And, he, and I remember reading an interview with him one day. He said, I love living in LA, but I love working in New York. And I said, I get that. Now, I haven't had that ability to do it quite like he did, but it's, it's a parallel thing. Also, Larry was a movie nut. I was a movie nut. I just felt kind of a kinship to him. And also, I like independent movies. I like movies that sit in the middle. You know, I also don't mind low-budget movies if they're interesting. Mm -hmm. and, and Larry had all of that. And then I think, you know, Roger had also gotten a lot of uh, attention because, you know, he was this you know, uh, B-movie impresario genius. And I think he was. The difference is Larry wrote his stuff. Larry was a triple hyphenate. Right. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. At the end of all of Larry's movies, he'll have a single card that says a Larry Cohen film. That card is earned. You know, Larry wrote it, he directed it, and he produced it. If you like it, it's all about, it's all because of Larry. If you don't like it, it's all because of Larry. Yep. And and he just seemed like he was a ripe topic for me. I agree with that because you're absolutely right. It's probably the same thing in comics where Stan gets all this attention and no one's trying to well there are people who try to take it away but not, but there's so many other folks out there who had such a large impact, right? And they don't get as much attention and Larry Cohen is one of those people who started writing in television and I'm I'm sorry, I'm trying to remember. And, and then just kind of built a very he independent a, movie empire, for lack of a better a, word. I mean, he his damn house was the set in so many movies. And boy, it was weird to go to that house the first time. Was it? Yeah, because I'm going, wait a second, I've been here. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I was watching your documentary and oh, I, uh, uh, I, I'm going to get the movies all screwed up. Um, but I didn't realize how often you saw it. Yeah, well, I think it's in the movie. It said Larry liked shooting his house because he could get up in the morning and not commute to the set. <laughs> you know, but, and he strangely made it work, I think, most of the time. Not all the time, but most of the time. Yeah, yes, yes. But, but uh, good. Oh, I, I was just going to say, I think that the documentary worked on me as well because it's got a lot of heart. Like, I, it actually took me a couple uh, moments when, you know, talking about working with these older actors. And, and I think there's a part in the film where, you know, who has a mortgage to pay? Who is just looking for work? Who is? And I, I think about that because I, I do think that there's so much talent that is out there, kind of alluding to what Joe was saying, that you know, they, they, they are still phenomenally talented, but they don't get the press. And to see that, um, that it was just fascinating. And there's so much heart in your documentary. So it's just, even if you're not familiar with Larry Cohen, and you will be after you watch the documentary, there's just something about what he did outside of even the films about what he valued and those values show up 
in the films, but the documentary really shows that. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. That was fascinating. Oh, well, I, I appreciate that. You know, it's interesting when you make a movie like that, there is no script. It's a lot of hunting and gathering. So you yeah. start with, let me see, let me get this in the frame. You start out with this much stuff and then you gotta, you gotta bring it down to about that much stuff. And Larry, Larry, <laughs> God, I miss him. Um, you know, he said, oh, you didn't, you didn't include all of my, my plays. <laughs> Larry, I said, Larry, I, I couldn't, I had no cutaways. I didn't have any footage, you know, it right. well, doesn't make any difference. And I said, Larry, you know, I'm sorry. I, he says, oh, you should have done a mini series. And I said, <laughs> Larry, yeah. Larry always gave me a hard time about everything, but I, I adored him. And what was nice was going to a lot of festivals with him and getting, getting to see him get curtain calls. You know, yep. when you're an actor in the theater, you get a curtain call every night. When you're a filmmaker, you don't. But um, the movie, I found the movie in the editing room. Mm -hmm. And I knew I was going to do a story about a guy's career. And each of the movies that I focused on revealed something to me and hopefully to the audience about who he was. I said to my editor in the beginning, I said, we're making a movie about this guy and we're going to talk about his head, his heart and his balls. And, <laughs> and basically I, I think we managed to do that. You did because he has, he had, he had some cojones. That big. Brother. And, he and, told some uh, people to go fuck themselves that I wouldn't have done. I would have been like, I know I want to make a living. I wouldn't have had the much, I wouldn't have had that kind of confidence in myself to go that much on my own. I would have been, no, no, please, I'll work for the studio. Larry is one of those guys who had an extraordinary belief in himself. And, you know, they say that you need two out of three to be successful luck, timing, or talent. And Larry had all three. He was lucky, the timing was perfect, mm -hmm. and he had the talent. And, and the belief in himself. And, you know, we, we talked about a lot of things that were sort of maybe not as charitable or a little darker. And I said, I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to celebrate what he did. Yeah. But the secondary theme of the movie is celebrating the time of what he did. I think that period in the 70s, well, everybody talks about the 70s as being a mm -hmm. great time for movies. And I agree with that. Those were my formative years as a fan. Um, my second favorite movie is The French Connection, which should tell you a lot right there. Yeah. And, but the when Larry did what he did was worth celebrating as well. And, and Larry, God, Larry loved old Hollywood. He loved old Hollywood. I think his, his personal favorite movie is The Private Lives of J. Edgar Hoover which is maybe one of the harder movies of his to see. Um, it's not on Blu-ray. I think it was an on-demand uh, DVD. Right. But it's packed with old Hollywood people. And Larry actually got to shoot at MGM. And I think Larry always felt he was born too late. I think Larry wanted to be like Michael Curtiz or Raoul Walsh or one of those guys who worked for the studios under the studio system and his way of sort of experiencing that was shooting on lots sometimes and then working with people that he loved as a fan. Right. But 
I've got a question. Now I've got Broderick Crawford question. Sorry. Uh, what I was going yeah, to. He was drunk a lot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I get that. But what I was. So watching it, I was sitting here going, he's got a lot of great people. I'm curious, who did you not get uh, the, that you really wish you could have? You Mine know, would have been Sam Fuller, but that's impossible. He was kind of dead. That's what I'm saying. I just said that's impossible. I read his book too. Is the fourth it's phase, great, I think. It's a great book. It's a yeah. Great book. I, I'm a big fan of Sam Fuller's. And Larry's house used to belong to Sam Fuller. Oh, I did. Is that in the document? I don't remember that. I didn't know I don't that. know if we put it in there or not. I don't think that's in there, but I didn't know that. Yeah, it used his house used to belong to Sam Fuller. So, you know, and and each decade sort of had a hyphenate. Sam Fuller was a 50s. Mm -hmm. uh, 60s hyphenate. Larry was a 60, 60s, 70 hyphenate. And now I guess Quentin Tarantino is, 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 is the current big hyphenate. But they're not a lot of those guys. No. You know, I don't have many regrets about King Cohen. I do feel that I may have screwed up in a couple of situations. One, I really should have chased Tony Lobianco harder. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, for two reasons. One, you know, he's in God Told Me To. And two, he's in the French Connection for crying out loud. And the <laughs> Seven Ups, which is another favorite of mine. Yeah. And, and I just saw that last year, by the way. Oh, I've never seen him before. I love it. Best car on car chase ever done, I think. Really? Um, yeah, because it's New York City. There are too many things that can go wrong when you're having a car chase. So it, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's great. And it's art in terms of the route that that chase takes, it's uh -huh. more or less accurate. Oh, uh, anyway, so uh, I wish I I wish I had pushed harder for Tony Lobianco. I wish I had pushed harder for um, uh, Joel Schumacher, but at the time he was going through some very embarrassing, bad press about his sexual uh, interests, let's say. Oh, I didn't know that, but we have a great Joel Schumacher story we can tell you after this is over, if you'd like. Yeah, um, so, but I think I would have liked to have had Joel. Um, we did try and get Quentin Tarantino, but he he just wasn't available to us. Um, but I have to say that I'm pretty happy with the cast. I am too. I just, it's one of those because we've made short films and we, we it's not that we understand completely, but we can empathize of, you know, it's never enough, right? No, it's there's not so much. There's not so much that it's completed. It's just abandoned at some point, right? That you uh, try. I, I used to have a professor that when I was working on my dissertation, he always said, just remember great works of art can never be completed. They must be abandoned. And I think that was just him giving me an out. But yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure I completely agree with that. But sometimes, you know, like, for example, there were one or two other people who I could have talked to, but we literally didn't have the money to do the shoot. Mm -hmm. you, know, you just get to the point, you say, is it worth digging into our own accounts for the money that it's going to cost to shoot that day? And then you have to make a decision. But the names that I told you, especially Tony Lobianco and Joel Schumacher are are the two I really wish I had been relentless about, and I wasn't. Yeah. The other question I have is, what story did you get that was either shocking or you didn't see coming? Or something you didn't know, maybe Larry? at all? Yeah. Oh, Jesus. I mean, I got hours of that. Okay, good. I mean, there is no one story. I mean, Larry's... I tell you the one story that, and, and this will make sense to you. Now, he took, Larry told me he took credit for the car chase and the French connection that somehow I think he might, been, he might have been considered to write it mm -hmm. 
and uh, because Phil D'Antoni had produced Bullet, they were looking for another car chase. And Larry is a New Yorker. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, I think Larry is a New Yorker. Said, "Why don't you have a chase between a car and a subway?" And I've heard Friedkin say that he came up with it, but I'm leaning towards believing Larry because it's an outrageous concept. <laughs> And that was the ballpark that Larry would play in yeah. on a regular basis. The outrageous concept. Um, the other, the other thing is um, how well I, I think the story, and it's in the movie where he was driving a taxi cab on the sidewalk in the streets of New York. Yep. With without permits, without stunt people, and everything like that. I, you know, <clears throat> that takes really big balls. You know, it, you are, they'll get out of the way they'll get out of the way yeah as, well, but he's right that's the other thing but still you go man that's that's dangerous shit it, and it was important that we talked to his first wife you know giving him a lot of crap about that but you know god so many so many stories so many hours of stuff but she you know in the documentary she doesn't even come off as as sometimes exes can you know, with hate-filled or a lot of anger, any I didn't get any of that when you were talking to her. I don't think anybody hates Larry. I think he's just hard to put up with sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, his uh, Cynthia, his delightful, wonderful wife. Um, every once in a while, we would. I think we'd go to a couple of festivals, and every once in a while, Larry is being, "No, I don't want to eat there. I want to go eat there." You know, and she sort of look at me like, "I, you know, look at him today." Um, you know, but Larry was Larry. And I don't think, like I said, I don't think anybody hated Larry. Mm -hmm. I can't think of anybody who didn't, you know, wasn't sort of charmed by him uh, on some level. Yeah, he could be a handful. He always gave me a heart. Oh, seven ups, give you a great. Yeah. Uh, we're having a conversation about the seven ups. And I told him how much I liked the movie. And he says, oh, they fucked it up. The car chase should have been at the end. I said, no, Larry, it should have been in the middle. Because the car chase in the middle propels the last act of the picture. Right. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. They fucked it up. It should have been in the end. I said, no, Larry. And then he went and he said to me, he says, if I want you to disagree with me, I'll tell you to. And, <laughs> you know, and we had lots of those conversations uh, in the kitchen uh, over coffee, over uh, cappuccino. And some of that's just being a friend. Chad and I are arguing a point for 10, 15 years that I just haven't given in to, even though I know he's right. <laughs> well you know what happens that you've achieved uh, wisdom and maturity i think well, i admitted to him a few years ago he might be right yeah well i i, I remember one night back because i'm from new york when you're in your 20s everything is combat like what the fuck do you mean you like that how fucking stupid can, i mean it, yep. it's every cliche in the world and i'll never forget i had a three-hour argument with a friend of mine about who is the better composer jerry goldsmith or john williams and of course by the time it was done we were just worn out and it was a complete stalemate um but i remember i think i smoked half a pack of cigarettes during that argument i mean it was it was epic and it was just because we were young yeah and, and from new york right and by the way back to some of his movies i I can't imagine going into a theater and you've got to put yourself at the time and place, right? Things and watching bone mm -hmm. and have I, it. And, and then either, the actually, by the way, I only saw bone on, on home video. 
Yeah. That had eluded me. Yeah, I you know I saw it a few years ago, and I think I may have actually caught that. Uh, Turner Classic Movies does a great job, and that's probably where I caught the Seven Ups too. Mm-hmm. Of if you Friday Saturday night, sometimes they have that late night cinema, and you can catch some really good things, and sometimes well, things that are out of print has been on that, been on that late night uh, midnight slot or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. The Underground, I think. TCM. The Underground, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great way to catch some stuff, but you have to be looking for it. Yes. Yeah. so i back to watching this unfold and maybe you thought this was if it was sold as a horror film you go in and watch this can you imagine yeah well you know it's interesting i i've always maintained that if bone had been a hit and and bone was i we talk about it in the documentary that nobody knew what the hell to do with it right but had bone been a hit i think larry's career would have been totally different because in inside larry was i think a playwright uh-huh Harry loved the theater he would go to New York literally just to go to the theater um and the bone is clearly something that could have been done as a play right and I think because people didn't go see it and Larry was always about the money he wanted to make money as a producer but he want he said to me once he said I want asses in the seats to see my movies Yep. And so that's how he started to take these odd combos of social commentary and put them together with genre. And, you know, someone asked me well after I'd finished making the movie, he says, what is the connective tissue in Larry Cohen's work? Which was a good question that I'd never even thought of. And I realized, I, I thought about it for a second, I said, well, Larry was a critic. He was a social critic that, all of his movies have something to say and all of his movies are really about something other than the exploitation hook. Right. Uh, You know, and that's why I, I mean, listen, I'd be the first one to admit, I don't think all of Larry's movies are perfect. I don't think all of Larry's movies really quite stack up, but I will say this, they are never not interesting. That's right. I mean, Q and there was, I, I'm not a huge fan of the stuff, although the stuff is one of those that people talk about. All Thank the- you. Th- I, the fact that people are insane for this stuff drives me nuts. Oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah, I, I just thought, don't understand where I it comes I from. Going, I didn't mean to offend. So there's two things. I was like, oh shit, I should probably shouldn't have said it. It was like the animation style for GI Joe because I didn't mean any offense, but I was thinking about that earlier. I was like, but also at the time, the reason that GI Joe doesn't and transformers you're watching on a 20 inch screen. Sure. Now you're watching it 60 and high def and there are no flaws to be hit. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, well, and the stuff I never, it's probably my least favorite like Q even return to Salem's lot because I, that's probably introduced me to Sam Fuller anyway, when I was younger, but I never understood the stuff. <laughs> the one that- uh, very quickly. I'll tell you the Q is my favorite because it's a combination of monster movie and crime movie in New York, in yeah. Gutter, New York, irresistible to me. My second favorite, and it's a very close second, is The Ambulance. Because uh-huh. the, the idea is out of its mind, and it's got a <laughs> comics connection. Uh, my th- the thing about the stuff is, on as an idea, the stuff is great. But I also felt that it was, it felt like it was a first draft of a better movie. I agree completely. I, I, I didn't like know Chad it, had watched it. I don't know if he had completely really thought it through. And as, as you see in, in, in the doc, um 
Larry rewrote a lot in the moment and on the set. Mm -hmm. And I think the idea for the stuff was great. But if you started to pull it apart, it seems like it's two or three different little movies within the movie. Yeah, the whole third act with Paul Servino, it just doesn't yeah. fit the first part. And I completely agree. But I will say this, it's still interesting. Yeah, everything he did, even the bigger budget things like Phone Booth. Phone Booth, you're absolutely right, has something to say. Phone Booth is a really good movie, actually. It is, it is. It is. Um, and it's efficient. You know, one of the things that um, I'm very you know, aware of now as I, as I get older is uh, efficiency in storytelling and all the great movies. I think make a list of your 10 favorite movies. I bet you they're all pretty efficient. Yep. You know, I mean, King Kong, which is an antique is an incredibly efficient piece of storytelling. And if you can tell the story and you can tell it quickly and directly and, and, uh, emotionally it's going to work and phone booth is i mean phone booth is what 82 minutes uh, barely man it yeah, might be barely, barely 82 hey, listen minutes. a chopping mole is yeah. only 78 minutes so, right uh, i'm not for short but i am for efficient movies and it's storytelling um and you know larry for the most part was very good at doing that he never overstayed his welcome you know yep. In fact, I've been asked, just uh, getting back to King Kong for a second, because why not? Um, you no, know, we love talking about it. Why don't you make it longer? And I said, I didn't want to overstay my welcome. And I will tell you something else. You know, you're talking about, even if you don't know Larry, and the movie passed what I call the wives and girlfriends test. The guys, guys like you would go, mm -hmm. maybe their wives or girlfriends would go, well, I never heard of this guy. Who's this guy? The some of the best compliments I got were from the wives and the girlfriends. Like, I never heard of this guy. He's great. And, you know, I've said this a lot, but I'll say it again for your, for your audience is the most important thing in any story are great characters. And Larry's a great character. You, you become involved with him. You become fascinated by him. And then, you know, the trick then is not to overstay your welcome. I could have made a two and a half hour movie and not broken a sweat. Yeah. Honestly. But, well, you know, and some people said maybe at an hour and 40, I think it's about an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah. Uh, it might have been a little too long. I said, no, I don't think it was too long. No, it wasn't too um, long. And I'll give you one more compliment. I watched it probably about nine months ago, well before I ever knew we were going to do this, had no inkling that we we're going to do this. And then my wife came, to, I'm in the basement. Uh, and this is where all this madness takes place. And she came down after the kid was asleep and she goes, what the hell is this? And I tried to explain it to her and she's in the movies. And then she sat down and you're right. We finished it late that night because she was completely into it and interested into his career. So congratulations, my man. Well, thanks. Um, the, the whole experience was very gratifying for me. Um, I don't know what I expected I was going to make when I had the idea, but in the process of doing all the interviewing and then especially with Larry, you know, again, you hunt, you gather, and then you find the narrative. Um, but it's weird. I watch it and I find it interesting to watch just as a viewer. Yeah. And I didn't know that that could ever really happen. That's awesome. You know, um, I, we were very lucky. We were very lucky to get the people we got. We were very lucky, you know, I mean, Larry helped get us, us get J.J. Abrams. Uh, a, quick, a quick thing, I had the J.J. story in the back of the movie 
as kind of an Easter egg or like one mm -hmm. of those Marvel cutaways in the middle of the end credits. And Larry, Larry started beating the crap out of me. He said, you're an idiot. You should have it up front. He's a, you should. He's a big deal. And I said, yes, Larry. Okay, Larry, I'll take care of it, Larry. <laughs> and then I said, I said to my guys, I said, yeah, he was right. He was right. It's a great way He's to right. start it out. It just, it, and, and, and it's a good story. It's a tone setter. And, yeah. and, you know, the other thing is, um, I remember going to a seminar one night with uh, Ed Zwick and Dick Wolf a long, long time ago. And Ed Zwick said something I never forgot. And he said, apropos of nothing, he said, it can always be shorter and funnier. And once I discovered there was a lot of funny with Larry, I said, that was going to be one of my, my, my spines. Always look for the funny. Yep. And the, the he said, he said thing between him and Fred Williamson yeah. uh, was one of the first things that we cut. And in many ways was a little bit of a tone setter in the rest of the picture. Yep. And I was able to get that with Moriarty with the hair pieces, which was great. And then, you know, Fred and Larry again on original gangsters going back and forth. So I was also able to do that thing, which they teach you in screenwriting school, which is, you know, setups and payoffs. Yep. You know, but again, I didn't know we were going to do that. It's just that's content dictates form when you're doing a documentary, I think. Yeah. So, man we have, I, I we have brought, you've got one more question jason i was say i know we're almost out of time but i have to ask yeah. this because i've been burned by imdb before yeah i love king cohen is the listing that you're you're working on a film about comic fans who become comic legends yeah i very very quickly um one of the projects i want to do is a thing called true believers which is about the first generation of comics fans that became pros and it's kind of my story because mm -hmm. I was part of that group. But it's really about, you know, if you know anything about the history of comics is guys did comics because they couldn't get illustration work. They couldn't get magazine work. They couldn't get newspaper strip work and comics paid fast. Well, the blue jean generation, as I call them, uh, they wanted to do comics as they wanted to do comics. And I have a, a Patreon page called True Believers, which is something, you know, which we're going to use for fundraising when, when the time comes. During COVID, it was silly to even start. Mm -hmm. But what I did is for anybody who, who subscribes to it, I do a podcast talking about my experiences in comics. And when I first started doing it, I was doing 20 minutes or something like that on a topic. And now I'm doing them like twice a month. And I have uh, my friend Cyborg is a screenwriter. And I've done a couple. Mark Chirello, uh, who's my friend who was worked at uh, DC, is the art director for so many years. Mm -hmm. He and I did one. And it, it went so well. We're going to do another one, I think, next week. And now, so we have a whole bunch of content where I talk about my, my comics past and my experiences and the people who I knew. Uh, and, and like I said, they started out being around 15 to 20 minutes. And, and now they're all basically somewhere in the vicinity of an hour. And uh, my partner said, he said, don't look at the clock. As long as it's interesting, keep going. So that's kind of what we're doing. So the Patreon page, the True Believers Patreon page has hours of me wow. gabbing about comics and my experiences. So they can, they can go to Patreon and just type in search in True Believers and get access that's that way. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And, and basically we created it because when we decide we're going to do a kickstart for that, you know, you have to create the awareness before you start the kickstart 
all of which I, I didn't know when I tried to do it for King Cohn, by the way, I was, I was a spectacular failure at it. But luckily, I now am partnered with people who know how to do things I don't know how to do. That's always I, I am good. looking forward to that. So thank you for letting us know about that. Because I, yeah, I almost I, forgot, I, you know, which just shows you what a, you know, lummox I am. No, we try to take care of our folks. Good job. Well, you guys are great. And I, I have, I have to say adios uh, in a minute or so. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, I, if there's something that you missed, or if you want to have me back, just let me know. I had a great time talking with you guys. Yeah, we're, we're going to go ahead and sign off and then we'll, we'll just go ahead and say bye. Thanks, Steve, so much. It's been Steve Mitchell on Bonehead. Thank you for coming by, sharing so many great stories. We could have sit here and talked to you about Larry for the next hour. James and Chad could have talked to you about... But... About Batman and about write, writing a character named Snowjob. Did I you write know. a character named Snowjob? Well, he's in Eye for an Eye. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> um, I will tell you one quick Batman-related thing. I was working for Neil Adams... Uh, at his uh, studio, Continuity Associates. And Alan Kupperberg and I worked with Neil and Dick Giordano, who were partners. And one night, I think it was around six or seven o'clock in the evening, most of the guys have gone home. And I'm sitting there and I think I'm doing backgrounds for Giordano on something. And then Neil, who I was always somewhat terrorized by, uh, yells, Mitchell! And I go, what, what, what did I do? What did I fuck up? Because... <laughs> I thought he was going to give me a lot of shit about doing something wrong. And he said, you're going to be bigger Melvin. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, you're going to be bigger Melvin. So don't move. And bigger Melvin is a character in the famous Batman Joker story. I think the, the Joker's five way revenge or something like that. It was written by Denny pencil and ink by Neil. And I'm one of the characters in there that the Joker kills. Yeah. <laughs> so I not only have a long-standing relationship with Batman as as an inker, but I also was a character. Oh, like my baseball card, uh, it sets me apart. And you notice how I paid something off that we set up in the first time? I know. <laughs> That's what I was about to say. Listen, Bonehead Weekly people, we brought it back 360 just in there. Steve, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. We'd love to have you back anytime you want to come on the show. My, my great pleasure, as you can tell. I, I, you know, once you wind me up, I never stop. We love that. All right. This has been Bonehead. Grrrr. <sniffs>